Hey, I'm Nancy Cavey. I'm a national ERISA disability attorney, and I want to welcome you to Winning Isn't Easy. Before we get started, I have to give you a legal disclaimer. This podcast is not legal advice, but the Florida Bar Association says I've got to say this. So as I always say, I've said it. But nothing prevents me on this podcast from giving you an easy to understand overview of the disability insurance world, the games the carriers play, and what you need to know to get the disability benefits you deserve. So ready? Off we go. In this episode, I'm going to talk about what you should do if your short-term disability insurance claim has been denied or your short-term disability benefits have been cut off before you've been paid all your benefits. We're also going to do some more myth-busting, the myths that disability insurance policyholders believe about ERISA and individual disability insurance and the truth. And the story of what one federal judge did about the short-term disability carrier's last-minute denial of benefits because the treating physician failed to respond to a call from the carrier's peer review provider. Stay tuned, and when we come back, we'll get to it. Have you been robbed of your peace of mind from your disability insurance carrier? You owe it to yourself to get a copy of Robbed of Your Peace of Mind, which provides you with everything you need to know about the long-term disability claim process. Request your free copy of the book at kvlaw.com today. So what should you do if your short-term disability insurance claims been denied or your short-term disability benefits have been cut off? Now, unfortunately, it's not uncommon for disability carriers to deny a short-term disability claim or to cut off a policyholder during the short-term disability period. Well, why do they do that? There's a a reason behind this uh, denial tool. Most policyholders have long-term disability insurance policies in addition to the short-term disability policy. And so if they pay you short-term disability benefits, that's going to create a pretty significant exposure to the long-term disability carrier. So by cutting you off, either um, while you are being paid those short-term disability benefits or denying your claim outright is a tactic. They they hope that you're going to get discouraged uh, and that you won't file an appeal. They're also hoping that if they cut you off before the end of the short-term disability benefit period, that not only will you not appeal, but you also won't apply for long-term disability benefits. And that saves them a heck of a lot of money, doesn't it? So why do disability insurance carriers deny short-term disability claims? I think that disability carriers set up short-term claim denials to make it harder for you to get the disability benefits you deserve. And it's as simple as that. Remember, they collect your gold and then they rule that you're not entitled to your benefits. That's the disability carrier's version of the golden rule. Now, I found that uh, HR reps, insurance agents, and inexperienced attorneys can make the mistake of telling you only to appeal the short-term claim denial. And then if the claim isn't paid, then you sue only for your short-term disability benefits. And in my view, as an experienced long-term ERISA disability attorney, I think that that's two big mistakes that you should avoid making. Now, worse yet, the issue can be complicated by the specific terms of the short-term disability plan or policy. Well, 
What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes the long-term disability policy will require that you be eligible for and be paid all of your short-term disability benefits before you qualify for long-term disability benefits. So if you don't appeal and try to skip go, you're not eligible uh, for long-term disability benefits. Now, there are some times when the short and long-term disability plans aren't coordinated, but I still think it's important to uh, proceed on both a short and long-term disability claim. Let's talk about the elimination period game. The long-term disability policy may have a separate requirement that you be disabled for a specific period of time, and that's called an elimination period. Now, some policies don't require that you be paid short-term disability benefits to be paid for long-term disability benefits, but they won't tell you that because they want to discourage you from appealing the short-term disability denial, hoping that you'll find an inexperienced ERISA disability attorney who will only take the short-term disability claim and that you'll get uh, you'll run out of time for filing the long-term disability claim or uh, make other mistakes. And clearly, clearly that's all a game. So in my view, what you should do if your claim has been denied is to do the following. I want to write a letter to the long-term disability carrier saying, look, our client's going to be applying for those long-term disability benefits. And I want you to send us a copy of the long-term disability application form. And why would I do that? Well, there might be a different carrier for the short-term and long-term disability uh, policy. Uh, or the employer may handle the short-term disability and then have a long-term disability carrier. And, and I find that generally they're not the same players for the short-term and, and long-term disability claim. And even if they are, they don't communicate with each other. So I want to write a letter to the long-term disability carrier saying, we're going to be applying for benefits and give me that application form. And if they are going to play games, I always say, and by the way, if you're not going to send us these forms, I want you to consider this letter as our application for long-term disability benefits. Carriers might flat out refuse to send us the application for long-term disability benefits. Uh, they might refuse to accept our letter as an application or Worse yet, they might ignore it. So what happens if the short-term disability claim has been denied and we want to still proceed on a long-term disability claim and they ignore it or say, heck no. Well, I think there are two ways to go depending on the policy language. If the policy language explicitly requires that the only way you're eligible for long-term disability benefits is to be paid all of your short-term disability benefits, then technically you or we need to win that short-term disability claim or exhaust your administrative remedies on the short-term disability claim by filing an appeal. Well, why would we want to do what I'm suggesting that we're doing? I want to be able to sue the short-term, I'm sorry, the, the, the disability carriers, be it short-term and long-term disability benefits for your benefits. I want to sue them for both. I don't want to be hanging out here waiting for the short-term disability claim to be decided by the, the court and lose our opportunity or time to file for a long-term disability benefits. So I send the disability carrier a reminder that, that if the short-term disability benefits were paid, that the claim would roll over into a long-term disability benefit claim because I want them to consider the claim on that basis. Or Alternatively, I remind them that anything and everything we submit is to be considered as both part of a short-term disability appeal 
and a long-term disability claim. In other words, my appeal of the short-term disability claim is, in my view, a long-term disability claim application if they're playing games with me. So better yet, I will also submit um, an independent long-term disability claim. What do I mean by that? If the carrier won't give me their long-term disability application form, I just take a generic one off the internet and I fill it out and I say, I double dare you to deny it. And if they deny it, then I will take an appeal of the short and long-term disability claims. And when uh, those are denied, if they're denied, then I'm gonna sue both the short-term disability carrier and the long-term disability carrier. I'm not gonna let them kind of divide and conquer and, and wear us out. We're gonna go at them full guns, full barrels, um, and we're going to make them put up or shut up. So in, in my view, I don't take a short-term disability uh, claim the denial or termination sitting down to me, we need to get going on both that short-term disability and long-term disability claim. Got it? In the next segment, we're going to do some myth busting. If your doctor writes a note that you're disabled, the disability carrier is going to overnight you a check via FedEx. Stay tuned to learn the truth. Welcome to our myth-busting segment, the myths that disability insurance policyholders believe about ERISA and individual disability insurance and the truth. Look, I love that movie, The, the Ghostbusters, and I'm a myth-buster. I take my inspiration from, from uh, that great flick. So I want you to understand your ERISA and individual disability insurance policy. Uh, the ERISA and individual disability insurance claims process and the games that carriers are going to play in either delaying or denying your benefits. You have probably heard lots of myths from your neighbors, your friends, lawyers, and even insurance agents. And I hear these myths every day. And I've got to spend some time myth busting before we can get down to the real nuts and bolts of a case. So what's today's myth? If your doctor writes a note that you're disabled, that carrier is going to overnight you a check. So where do we start? Well, let's start with what a disability insurance carrier does when they get your claim. Among the forms they ask you to get filled out is an attending physician statement form, and they want to look at your medical records. So that attending physician statement form will rarely, in my view, ask the right questions. And as a result, I always modify the attending physician statement form to ask the right questions. So for example, um, if you uh, have a medical condition that, that, such as, say, fibromyalgia, and they're asking all sorts of uh, questions that are not relevant to your symptoms or the problems that you're having on that APS form, I want to modify it. And one of the ways that I do that is I will use a Social Security Disability Residual Functional Capacity Form. Now, I'm also a Social Security Disability Attorney, and there are over probably 60 residual functional capacity forms that lawyers have developed over the years. And so I want to pick out the right social security residual functional capacity form 
and modify that and the APS form and ask your doctor to complete both forms. Now, because I've practiced for so many years and handled many different medical conditions, I know how I want to modify the APS form and the residual functional capacity form so that the right questions are asked in your case about your symptoms and functionality. Now, the, the typical APS form asks for the diagnosis, the objective findings that support the diagnosis, the diagnosis and they're going to ask questions about your functionality form, like your ability to sit, stand, walk, and lift. The form is designed so that your doctor releases you to do some form of sedentary work. And it really rarely asks you, the, you to get answers from your doctors about your ability to perform your occupational duties. So in other words, it's a generic form. It, it's got no relevance to your disabling medical condition and how that condition impacts your ability to do the material and substantial duties of your occupation. And the other thing that the, the form will ask is uh, the objective basis of the restrictions and limitations. So I'm asked, well, how about if I just get a note from the doctor that says I'm disabled or I can't work? That's not going to cut it because the carrier also wants to understand the causal relationship between your diagnosis or your restrictions and limitations and your inability to do your own occupation. And they're going to look then at your medical records to determine if there's an objective basis for the diagnosis, the restrictions, and are your complaints consistent. So the carrier is going to have two sets of documents. They're going to have on the right-hand side a stack of your medical records. Left-hand side, they're going to have that attending physician statement form. And they're going to also, by the way, have a third document, and that's the activity of daily living form that you've been asked to complete as part of the application process. Now, it's crucial that you review your medical records before you file a claim to make sure that they're accurate, complete, and address your symptoms and functionality. Because the disability carrier is going to go from document to document to document and see how, see what you've said about your occupation, what your doctor said about your occupation, what you said about your restrictions and limitations uh, in terms of your functionality, what your doctor says, what your complaints are about your symptoms, the frequency, the duration, the intensity. And the carrier is looking for inconsistency. They want to see if you're being consistent with what you're telling the doctor and what the doctor is saying about you. Because one of the ways they attack um, a claim is to see if your doctor's relying on your subjective complaints in rendering opinions about your restrictions and limitations. So if you say in your ADL form that um, you, know, you can't even lift 10 pounds and your doctor says you know, they can't lift 10 pounds because you have an increased onset of, of, uh, of uh, symptoms, but you know, I, I think based on their complaints, they can't even lift five pounds then there's going to be some head scratching because they're going to be, they, the carrier is going to be looking for inconsistencies and that can trigger surveillance. So if there's any inconsistency between what you report to your doctor about what you can do uh, and, and any inconsistencies between your ADL forms and what the doctor says you can do so that there's this obvious discrepancy, 
I guarantee they're going to put surveillance on you. They're going to contact your physician after they have uh, done the surveillance to see if they can get your physician to move off those restrictions and limitations. And if they can't, they're going to say, ha, well, the doctor in rendering their opinion regarding restrictions and limitations is relying on the subjective complaints of the patient, the, the policyholder. And here's a conflict between what the person said on their ADL forms and what the doctor says. And by the way, we've got film doing uh, them doing something completely different that they said they couldn't do. So we're going to reject all the physician's opinions because the physician is relying on your subjective complaints, which are refuted by the surveillance film. So the truth is that um, just because your doctor says that you are disabled isn't going to make it so. Um, the carrier is going to look at your ADL forms, going to look at your medical records, going to look at what your uh, physician has said on the attending physician statement form, and they're going to be looking for consistency. Inconsistency will kill your claim. So next week, we're going to take on myth five. If the disability insurance company sends an activity of daily living form to me, it's because they're sincerely interested in what I'm able to do daily. And they're going to rely on that form and sending me that check for my disability benefits. In the next segment, I'm going to be telling you what one federal judge did about a short-term disability carrier's last-minute denial of benefits because the treating physician failed to respond to a call from the carrier's peer review provider. Are you a professional with questions about your individual disability policy? You need the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. This book gives you a comprehensive understanding of your disability policy with tips and to-dos regarding your disability application that will assist you in submitting a winning disability application. This is one you won't want to miss. For the next 24 hours, we are giving away free copies of the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. Order yours today at disabilityclaimsforprofessionals.com. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. Sometimes court cases read like mystery stories. Sometimes they read like fairy tales. And sometimes they read like horror stories. I'm going to tell you a little bit about both. First, I'm going to start out with a horror story of what one federal judge did about a short-term disability carrier's last-minute denial of benefits because the treating physician didn't respond to a call from the carrier's liar-for-hire peer review provider. So let's talk about the ERISA regulations. They require that if the disability carrier's peer review liar-for-hire doctor disagrees, and they generally do, with or wants clarification always from the treating physician, that the peer review doctor should reach out to the treating physician. And so one of the new denial games that disability carriers play is to have their liar for hire peer review doctor opine that you can really work. And then they send their peer review report to the treating physician for comment. If the treating physician doesn't respond, the carrier will treat their silence as an agreement that you can work despite the fact that your doctor may have filled out a million 
um, attending physician statement forms that assign restrictions and limitations that preclude you from working. And so the carrier will say, gotcha. This is becoming a weapon. And unfortunately, not all the courts are recognizing that it's become a weapon. For example, there's this awful case called Griffin versus Charter Communications. It's a case out of North Carolina. And Griffin was disabled because of a psychiatric impairment and hypertension. The claims administrator for the short-term disability plan had their plan peer review liar for hire doctors reach out to the treating physician to satisfy their plan duty to retrieve and consider relevant information. Unfortunately, Griffin's treating doctor was contacted six times over several days and just didn't respond. Now, despite the fact that the administrator never told Griffin that they were reaching out, that the contacts had been unsuccessful, the court said that the plan administrator's contacts were enough to satisfy its burden and they upheld the denial of the claim. Now, that's not only just wrong, it's crappy. The lessons that I learned from a case like that is that I think that the policyholder should be sent a letter, uh, or should send a letter rather, to the carrier saying, you can't call my treating physician and I am gonna put you on notice that any request for information or clarification has to be put in writing with a copy of that request to me and if I'm represented to my attorney. And I wanna put the doctor on notice that they should not respond to any request unless it's in writing and I'm copied with it. And I want to send a, in my letter to the carrier uh, a paragraph that says, look, you're on notice that if you're reaching out for more information and you don't get a response that you have an obligation to notify me and I will deal with a treating physician and I will intervene and I will get you whatever it is you want. And I want you to hold up that decision until we can help you clarify any questions you have or get any additional information. I don't want the disability carrier to game this ERISA regulation. Um, and I think that it's unfortunate that Griffin lost her case, but those were some lessons that uh, I've learned and lessons that have changed the way I handled this particular issue. Now, I wanna contrast that with an Alabama court who rejected uh, the United of Omaha's request for comment and denied the claim because the treating physician didn't respond. Now, unfortunately, this case uh, reflects uh, the problems that we have in ERISA and the lack of uniformity in how courts apply um, ERISA rules, ERISA regulations, and ERISA case law. But let me tell you the fairy tale of Wiley versus United Omaha Life Insurance Company, which is, as I said, a case out of Alabama. Wiley was a senior business analyst and could not maintain attention and concentration to do analytical skills on a sustained basis. And this was corroborated by his physicians, by objective medical testing, multiple spinal surgeries, uh, and continued significant post-operative problems. Yet, of course, United of Omaha's liar for hire peer review providers concluded he could work. And they sent their peer review liar for hire reports to Wiley's treating physicians asking, do you agree with my conclusions that he could perform his occupational duties as a senior business analyst? 
those physicians didn't respond and United of Omaha attempted to weaponize the lack of response as a justification for the claims denial. And when Wiley sued, the court said, not only not so fast, but outlined in a 56 page decision with an extensive appendix to the administrative record that the court created on its own, a detailed chronology of the medical facts of the case that outlined the significance of Wiley's problems, not only prior to surgery, but postoperatively. And the court said, look, we're not going to take the treating physician's lack of response uh, seriously. We're going to afford it little weight. And we don't think that it's sufficient to ignore the reams of medical evidence that support this claim. And in a quote that I love to use in my appeals, the court said, ignoring the breadth and depth of such objective evidence allows insurance companies to subvert meritorious claims by simply increasing the paperwork burden on a claimant physician. Now, obviously, this result differed from the unfortunate decision uh, that we've talked about. And that's unfortunate because the result's going to depend on where you live and the way the courts in your area address the issue. And I think that's, again, one of the reasons why you need an experienced ERISA attorney, because the law may be the same, but the courts interpret it differently uh, in not only uh, every circuit, but within the district courts of each circuit. But I want to give a shout out to um, Wiley's doctors and um, all the doctors who fill out attending physician statement forms and have to put up the carrier's harassment. I think that they're the true heroes of the long-term disability claims. And I hate the way the disability carriers try to paint these doctors um, in a corner by continuing to dump paperwork on them and asking them to, to agree or disagree with a liar for hire peer review doctors. When the treating physician has filled out multitudes of, uh, forms on behalf of the uh, the policyholder. So again, that's why I think it's crucial that your doctor be one who's willing to put up with his crap and who will support your claim throughout the life of the claim. When we come back, I'm going to uh, wrap up this podcast. that's a wrap. We've talked today about uh, what you should do if your short-term disability insurance claim has been denied or your benefits have been cut off before you've been paid all your benefits. We've busted some myths and I've told you some stories about how disability insurance carriers are trying to weaponize a treating physician's failure to respond to calls or contact. I want to remind you that I do take questions and uh, I enjoy answering questions uh, that I get from uh, people every day in my practice because I think you need to understand the games and what you need to do to get the disability benefits you deserve. So don't forget uh, to comment and give us your questions. Take care. Talk to you next week.